0: Good evening. Glad y'all are here. If you have a Bible, open it up to Hebrews chapter one Going to be in verses 5 through 14. Hebrews 1, 5 through 14. And again, Andy said this earlier, but uh, those Bibles that were handed down, if you need to use the Bible today, you're welcome to. And then if you need a Bible to take with you, either for yourself or a friend you know that might like to have one, uh, feel free to take those with you. Uh, Those are a gift to you. All right, Hebrews chapter 1, I'm going to start in verse 5. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain and they all will become old like a garment, a garment And like a mantle, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will also be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Would you pray with me? Father, we're grateful for just the opportunity to be here and to together proclaim and sing the greatness of Jesus Christ, your Son. Uh, Lord, we do acknowledge uh, the words of your scripture as well as the words of that wonderful creed that we said together a few moments ago, uh, that we believe that you are truly God, you never change, and your Son shares your character and your nature. Father, we pray that we would, as we study your word, come to an understanding of not only who Jesus is, but how powerful he is over everything in the universe, including our lives, and recognize that we can trust him. Now, Lord, open up our minds. I pray that you would remove distractions from the week, whether it's tests or relational issues or whatever it is that may be going on, I pray for these few minutes you would open our minds to understand, focus on your word. Father, we pray for our hearts that they would be soft to hear and teachable. And uh, Father, we pray through your spirit you would empower us to obey you. We love you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you take your idea about angels from the popular culture, you may have a variety of different views about what angels are, what they look like, what they do, what are what are their tasks. Uh, as I thought about it this week and about angels, as I was reading through this passage, a few images came to my mind about angels from a popular culture. One, the first one that popped into my mind was from the movie It's a Wonderful Life uh, from the 1930s. Many of you have seen this movie. They play it over and over and over again around Christmas time. And the angel in that movie is a guy named Clarence Oddbody who died 200 some years ago, and he's still trying to earn his wings. And so the conception of angels in the movie is angels are human beings who died. And now when they go to heaven, they become angels and they kind of work their way up. If you remember, Clarence is an angel second class because he hasn't yet earned his wings. And he's kind of a silly guy. He's kind of a bumbler. He's confused sometimes, but he manages, of course, to earn his wings. And we learn that all-important theological treat that every time a bell rings, an angel earns his wings at the end of it. And, and it's a wonderful, feel-good movie, uh, but the, the truths that it gives us about angels may not actually be true from the Scripture. The second one I thought of was uh, from a movie called Michael, starring John Travolta. Uh, Some of you have perhaps seen this. On the other end of the spectrum, Travolta's archangel Michael is a bit profane. He's not the kind of angel that we typically think of. He drinks and he smokes and he does things you wouldn't expect an angel to do, and yet he's basically nice and helpful to people most of the time. But probably the the image that was most clearly ingrained in my mind is actually an unexpected one. Uh, I thought of the precious moments angels. Uh, Some of you have perhaps seen the figurines and the dolls and the cartoons and drawings of Precious Moments. Here's uh, what these guys look like. They are basically like little babies with wings. And uh, you see them everywhere. And the reason it came to my mind is because I have to admit that I have actually been to the Precious Moments headquarters and chapel in Missouri. It wasn't like a guy's road trip in college or anything, or I was like, hey guys, Precious Moments, let's do it, all right? It wasn't anything like that. Um, my mom and I drove my brother, uh, he w- went to school in the Midwest in Illinois for a couple of years, and so we drove him up, we dropped him off in Illinois, and on the way back, my mom says, hey Matt, uh, did you know that the Precious Moments Chapel and headquarters is nearby where we're driving through in Missouri? And uh, I didn't know that, actually, I hadn't done a lot of research on it, but I decided, uh, she, it was clear she wanted to go, so I said, all right, Mom, you want to go? We'll go together. And so we went to the Precious Moments thing, and it was just a mixture of interesting and somewhat uh, inspiring and a little bit creepy all at the same time, kind of all thrown in there together. We went into this chapel, and uh, in the chapel, they actually had drawings all over the walls and ceiling that depicted the Old and New Testament stories, but everybody who was drawn, like Abraham and Isaac and David, they were all like little babies, all right, uh, reenacting these stories. And the angels were all babies as they appeared to people. And so this week, as I was thinking about um, angels, I thought uh, it's an interesting depiction our culture does, that often angels are depicted as children or as babies. But the reality is when you look at the scripture, that's not how angels are depicted. And when you look at the scripture, actually, angels are terrifying. They're, they're tall and they're big and they're shiny And they exude the glory of God so that when people see them, they tend to fall down on their face in abject terror. Nowhere does the Bible picture an angel as like a little baby. That would not be scary. It might be a little creepy, but it wouldn't be scary. And you nowhere see people going, oh, it's a baby. I'm going to, you know, catch him or something like that. It's actually, uh, they're terrified of these angels. If you look back in the book of Daniel, Daniel 10, an angel appears to Daniel and there's other guys with him. And when the other guys see the angel, they fall into unconsciousness. And Daniel goes into a trance to listen to what the angel says. As you get to the New Testament, in the book of Luke, angel appears to Mary. And the first thing the angel has to say to Mary is, don't be afraid. I bring you good news. Angel appears to the shepherds and the shepherds are terrified. In the old King James version, it actually says they're sore afraid. They're so afraid of him, of these angels, that it it hurts when they appeared to Joseph in the book of Luke, Joseph, same thing, angel says, don't be afraid. Every time we see an angel, people are terrified. Now I bring that out to say this, that as you look through the scripture and you see the awe that angels inspire, it's not always a huge surprise that people were tempted to worship them. As they thought about angels, they thought angels clearly are powerful and they're strong and they represent God. And so sometimes people were tempted to worship them. And so Throughout Judaism and even in the early church, there were strains of religion that were tempted to worship angels or to exalt angels, sometimes higher even than Jesus himself. And in the context of the book of Hebrews, as he has been talking with these people, these men and women who have come out of a practice of the Old Testament law into a belief in Jesus Christ, he's talking to them and they're tempted to go back into practicing the Old Testament law because it's safe. And because they believe through the law, they can receive the blessings of God. And their temptation now, and the argument they may give back to the author of Hebrews is this. Who are you to tell us don't obey the law? The law came through God's great mediators, the angels. And tradition in Judaism said that it was the angels, when Moses was on Mount Sinai, it was the angels who mediated the law. And so these men and women are saying to this author of Hebrews... If we don't go back to the law, not only will we experience persecution from the culture around us, but we'll also experience God's displeasure because God gave his messengers to tell us the law. And what the author of Hebrews is going to argue is this that yes, angels are trustworthy. Yes, angels are good. And yes, they gave us the law, which is good. But Jesus is greater, Jesus is better. And if you really want to know what is true about God, if you really want to know what it is that God wants to communicate to us now, you look to Jesus, because in Jesus we find the fulfillment of all of God's promises from the Old Testament. We find the fulfillment of the law. We find a perfect explanation and representation of God in Jesus Christ, not in the angels. So as strong and powerful as they are, Jesus is greater. Now, I read the passage and I actually struggled a little bit this week to think through uh, how in the world do we apply a passage like this? What does it have to do with me today? Most of us in here are not tempted to worship angels. Most of us in here are not tempted to go back to the Old Testament law. But I would dare say if we were to talk for a while, most of us would find that there are things in our lives, perhaps uh, things that we exalt higher than Jesus, either because they will protect us in safety from the pain and the trials that may come with identifying with Jesus Christ, or because we genuinely believe I can experience the blessing of God in my own path rather than looking to Jesus Christ alone. Some throughout history have said I can experience the blessing of God if I do the right things. Maybe if I go to Africa and I build enough things Maybe if I have the right relationship or the right marriage or the right career, God will bless me. Maybe if I have the right amount of money, God will bless me. And what the author of Hebrews says, if you want to have salvation and eternal life, if you want to have the blessing of God, if you want to know what God has to say to you, there's only one place to go, and that's to Jesus Christ. And so his argument now is going to walk through, why is Jesus better than the angels? And he's going to use a string of Old Testament texts to prove Jesus' superiority. And the implication is, in Jesus Christ, we find life that cannot be found in any other source, whether it's an angel or a prophet or a human being other than Jesus Christ. Only in him do we have life. All right, so that's going to be his argument. Why is Jesus better than the angels? And ultimately, if Jesus is better than the angels, then he's better than everything. He's greater than everybody. He says, Jesus is better than the angels, first of all, because he's God. Look at verses five and six again. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. Now here we have two texts from the Old Testament, actually three, but in verse five, there are two. One comes from Psalm chapter two, right? You are my son, today I have begotten you. The other comes probably from 1 Chronicles 17, verse 13. It's either from there or from 2 Samuel 7. All right, the two have identical wording. And both of these passages, Psalm 2 and 1 Chronicles, are referencing what theologians and uh, Bible scholars will call the Davidic covenant. And that is that God met with David, King David. And King David had told the prophet Nathan, I want to build a temple for God in Jerusalem where people can worship him. And God says to David, David, you're not going to build this temple. But because you wanted to worship me, because of your heart, I'm going to give you a descendant who will build a temple for my name. And David, it goes further than that. David, your descendants will always have a descendant who will be a king, who will have the right to reign over Israel, and ultimately the right to reign eternally, forever and ever. And as we go throughout the Old Testament, the men and women of the nation of Israel began to understand this promise. God gave to David in light of the Messiah, the anointed king who was coming in the future. And they began to believe correctly as you look at the Old Testament that there was a king coming who would perfectly represent God. And that through him we would have salvation. Through him we would have eternal life. And so every king that came after David, they looked at that king to say, is he the one? Solomon, is he the one? He's wise. He's wise. And he does some great things, but at the end of his life, he fails to represent God. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, is he the one? No, he's strong, but he divides the kingdom in half. And as we walk throughout the history of Israel, it is a history of men who occupied this kingship, who failed, and so ultimately the people get cast off the land. And now, for hundreds of years, they look forward still to the coming of this Messiah, this anointed one who will represent God, right? That's the Davidic covenant. And and what the author of Hebrews does is he says, guess what? Jesus is that one. Jesus is the king you've been waiting for. He is the fulfillment of this covenant that God gave to David a thousand years before the coming of Jesus Christ. So he is to be worshiped even above the angels. That's why verse six, it says again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, that word firstborn has the idea of preeminence. The firstborn in a family was the one who had a double portion of the inheritance. It doesn't mean that Jesus was a created being or that Jesus didn't exist forever. Instead, it means that Jesus, out of all things in the universe, has the preeminent position, out of all people. It says, when God brings him into the world, probably at his incarnation, he says, let all the angels worship him. In other words, Jesus, the Messiah, is not only God's king, he is also God in the flesh. He's the one worthy of worship, and in fact, even the angels ought to fall down before him and worship because he's God's son. He's the only one who has the right to say, I am fully man and fully God. And the idea in the book of Hebrews is you want to know eternal life. You want to know what God wants. It's through Jesus because he's God. He is the son of God, meaning he perfectly represents God in human form. I ran across a picture again this week that I'd seen before. Some of you may have seen this. Uh, this is a picture taken during the Kennedy administration, and uh, there's JFK at his desk working, and uh, you can see the little boy hiding underneath the desk. Uh, the little boy is his son, JFK Jr., uh, and I saw that, and I thought, what a striking image because here we are at the most powerful office in probably the world, and there's this little boy hiding under the desk, and I thought, I wonder what would happen if I tried to do that, right? Not good things, Right? I wouldn't even really be able to get in. And even if I did manage to get in and I were caught, if I wasn't shot or tasered, I'd be arrested immediately. If a member of the cabinet tried to do something like that, secretary of state or whatever, you'd think he was a little off, but he'd get in trouble too. Only one or two people had that kind of access to the president. Those who bore his image. Those who represented him in essence and substance because they were his children. Jesus Christ, to an even greater degree, represents his father because, as we just said in the Nicene Creed, Jesus Christ is of the very essence of God. We talked a couple of weeks ago in Hebrews 1, When we were talking about the first part of Hebrews 1, we talked about a word that's used in the Nicene Creed. It's homoousion, a Greek word that means of the same essence, of the same substance. And the idea is Jesus is God in the flesh. He is God's son. And so he perfectly represents God. And so if we want to have access to God, it's through Jesus Christ. And that becomes very critical as we go to Hebrews chapter 4, further down the road. In Jesus Christ alone, we have access to God. And so the author of Hebrews says, don't listen to the angels primarily. Don't listen to any other prophet primarily. I don't care if it's Moses or Elijah. Listen to Jesus Christ. One of the most powerful scenes in the New Testament happens in Matthew chapter 17. Jesus takes Peter and James and John, three of his closest disciples, up onto a mountain And while they're up there, all of a sudden, Jesus' glory is revealed and he's transfigured, it says before him, and he shines out the glory of God. And Moses and Elijah come and they appear with Jesus and they start to talk with him. And Peter says, hey, this is great. Let's just build some tents up here. We'll camp up here. We'll listen to Jesus and Moses and Elijah. You guys can discuss some things. And as Peter is talking, a voice comes from heaven and says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. In other words, Peter, stop the camping plans for just a minute. Listen to him. He's better than Moses. He's better than Elijah because he's my beloved son and he represents me. He's greater than the angels, the greatest representatives of the law and the prophets because he is God in the flesh. And then in verses seven to nine, the author comes back to this concept of Jesus as not only God, but also as the rightful king of the whole universe. Look at verse seven. Of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. In other words, the angels are powerful servants of God. They exist to serve God. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. In other words, the angels exist to serve. Jesus exists to rule. He's the guy at the very top. And he has the right to reign not only over Israel, but over the entire earth. Jesus is the rightful king of the world. He's the rightful king. This quote is from Psalm chapter 45, by the way, another messianic Psalm talking about the coming of the Messiah. And the author uses it here to point out the Messiah, Jesus is also God in the flesh, but he's the rightful king of the whole world. And so again, Jesus can provide salvation. Jesus can communicate with God. Jesus can get done anything that he wants to do for the purposes of the kingdom of God because he is the king who represents God. And this is how God managed to communicate with mankind in a way that goes beyond anything else. It wasn't just through his words, but it was through his son, who John says functions as the ultimate word of God. And now Jesus is the God-man and the king of all the universe. A couple weeks ago, my wife and I were watching a TV show that's relatively recently come on. Sometimes on Sunday night, uh, we need something that's just a little bit less intellectual than other things we do. And so we were watching this TV show uh, called Undercover Boss. And some of you may have seen this show. The idea is that CEOs or COOs or guys at the top of a major corporation will disguise themselves and they will go and they'll work at the lower levels of the corporation for about a week just to see how things are going, just to learn what's going on in their own company. And uh, the first episode of this we saw, it was the CEO of 7-Eleven, right? The chain of convenience stores. This guy disguised himself and he went into different 7-Elevens and he'd work as a cashier or a stalker or whatever it may be. And uh, on this one part of the show, he was in a store. He was talking to the manager and he was, she was kind of telling him how to clean up. And he looked up and he noticed that some of the light bulbs were out on the ceiling. And he asked her about it. He said, why are the light bulbs out? Can't you guys change the light bulbs? She said, well, we have a company actually that we contract out with for the light bulbs and we have to call them and then they put us on a priority list and it usually takes two or three weeks to get the light bulbs changed. You could see the CEO, his jaw just dropped. I thought that's unbelievable. He goes out in the parking lot, he sits down, he gets on his cell phone and he calls the chief operating officer and he says, let's get this lady's light bulbs fixed right now. Then he goes back in and he starts sweeping the floor. Like 15 minutes later, a truck shows up. Guys come in, change the light bulb. You should have seen the manager's face. She's going, wow, that happened fast. She has no idea. What's the point? You want something done, you go to the very top. And what the author of Hebrews is saying, again, if you want the blessing of God in terms of knowing him, in terms of doing his will, if you want to be filled with his spirit, truly in a way that you could not through the law and through the prophets. If you want to see great things happen for God's kingdom and God's purposes, you go to Jesus. He's the king at the very top. You go to nobody else. There is no other prophet, whether it's a true prophet from the Old Testament or whether it's a self-proclaimed prophet like Mohammed or Buddha. There is no other human they can bring you into God's presence, They can let you know God and give you eternal life. So the author of Hebrews says, Jesus is God and Jesus is king. Not only that, but Jesus is eternally God and king. He lasts forever. Verses 10 to 12 says, You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they will all become old like a garment, and like a mantle you will roll them up, Like a garment, they will also be changed, but you are the same and your years will not come to an end. Jesus is eternal. He lasts forever. And when we get to Hebrews chapter eight, this is going to become critical as well. Because even in the time of Hebrews, the law is already beginning to pass away. So the author of Hebrews says, you cling to the law, but Jesus came and he fulfilled the law and the law is passing away. You cling to the prophets, but guess what? The prophets are dead. You cling to whatever it is that you think is important and significant, but it's going to fade away. And you go read the book of Ecclesiastes, and in the book of Ecclesiastes, we see uh, Solomon even chasing after everything in this world, and he says, you know what, it all passes away. And yet Jesus lasts forever. He created the earth, but not only that, he'll live beyond the earth. And the imagery is great. He says, like a garment, he just rolls it up, the earth and the universe and the world. He just rolls it up when it's tired and worn out. He puts it aside and he recreates. It's like an old t shirt. But Jesus lasts forever. And he's eternally God and he's eternally king. Not like the kings and prophets of the Old Testament, but greater. Shortly after I got married, I actually came to the realization that one thing that was going to change in my world was my wardrobe. Uh, My wife was going to slowly take control of my wardrobe. And so as things uh, began to fade away or uh, wear out, she would simply remove a shirt from my closet and uh, she'd just go replace it with something else. And I'd come in and I'd go, oh, new shirt. And I never really questioned a whole lot where things came from. I just kind of wore them and I thought, this is awesome. My whole wardrobe is becoming redone. But there was one item of clothing that uh, I was very reluctant to let go of. And it was a t-shirt, and I don't know why I liked it so much, but it was a t-shirt with a picture of Cookie Monster on it from Sesame Street. And uh, I had had this t-shirt since early on in college, and I liked it, and I think that I really liked it because I got lots of uh, compliments when I wore it. For some reason, other people liked the shirt. One day, a guy actually offered to pay me on the spot for the shirt. Uh, One guy offered to buy me food if I would give him the shirt. People wanted this shirt, and so I loved it. And so I told her, I said, you can, you can do whatever with my wardrobe. Just let me keep this shirt. Right? You got a whole closet full. Let me keep my shirt. So she's like, all right. Well, over time, the shirt began to fade away. It started to wear some holes in it as it got washed more and more. And I started just wearing it around the house. So I'd put it on and have these holes and I'd walk around and my wife would look at it and she'd kind of mutter something about, you know, I can't get rid of that shirt, blah, 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 you know. And so, uh, so, you know, it kind of developed this little tension. I came in at one point and the shirt was in the trash can. And uh, I pulled it out of the trash can, and I wrote my dear wife a note about why I love this shirt, and I want you to not throw it away again, please, right? And I kept it. I put it on. But what happened over time was, uh, was uh, the holes got bigger and bigger, right? And a uh, little hole right here turned into a bigger hole to the point where, unfortunately, Cookie Monster's face was totally gone. You couldn't see it. It was just a big hole in the front, and uh, I finally decided, uh, this is getting ridiculous, right? I can't even really wear this around the house. It's not a shirt anymore. So I finally got rid of it and I threw it away. And it was gone. And as much as I tried to cling to it, it's going to wear out. That's the imagery that the author of Hebrews uses about this world. It's moving toward decay. My body, your body is moving toward decay because of the effects of sin in the garden. And this world is moving toward decay and it says what's going to happen is Jesus who is eternal will take this world and he rolls it up like an old holy shirt and he just recreates. And yet Jesus remains forever. And the message is this, especially to this group. You want to cling to the angels and their their words in the law, fine. But just know the law is passing away. You want to cling to anything in this earth, fine, just know. It's passing away. So, some of you are here and you say, What I really want, I'm here at school, and what I really want more than anything, I want to get good grades and get the right job so I can make the right salary, live in the right house with the right family. And I would ask you, if that is your goal, let me ask you this question To what end? To what end? Because there may not be any, there isn't any prohibition in scripture against a certain job, against having a house, against having a family. In fact, all of those things at different points are spoken well of. But why are you pursuing those things? If you're pursuing those things, because you say, this is how I'll have life. This is how I'll have peace. This is how I'll have comfort. The scripture would say, no, it's not. You find those things in Jesus Christ. You find your significance in Jesus Christ. And so as you submit your time and your money and your future to Jesus Christ, he takes them and he makes something eternal out of them. So I invest in my family, yes, not just so I can have a nice, happy evening or happy week or happy year. But I invest in my family so that I can ultimately raise up children, men and women, who will go out and proclaim the glory of Jesus Christ. I invest in my career so that through my work and through the way I treat my coworkers, I can demonstrate what it looks like to be moved by the Spirit and to walk in the Spirit of God as I walk through this life. And so they turn their attention to Jesus Christ through me. So the author of Hebrews says, you want to invest in something that will last beyond this earth, invest in Jesus Christ. He is eternal. And then finally, he'll be ultimately victorious. Verses 13 to 14. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? In other words, he says this, not only is Jesus God, not only is he king, not only will he last forever, but his kingdom is coming. And we don't know exactly when, but it's coming soon. And Jesus completed the work that God gave him to do, that his father gave him to do. And what that was is Jesus came to earth as a human being, fully God and fully man. He lived a perfect life and then he took on himself the penalty for my sin, the disobedience against God, the thoughts, the actions, the sinfulness that I have. He died on a cross and took the penalty that I deserved and then he rose again. And he ascended into heaven. And his resurrection and his ascension are God's stamp of approval. That yes, I accept what Jesus has done. And now he gets to heaven and God says to him, what? You sit over here. Take a seat. Your work is done. And by the way, put your feet up. Put your feet up on the enemies that you've now defeated. Death. Sin. The devil. Pain. It says what Jesus is doing now, we're going to see in Hebrews. He's interceding on our behalf before the Father, but he's also waiting. He's waiting for that time in which these enemies will not only be defeated uh, because of his death and resurrection, but he will ultimately establish his kingdom in perfect righteousness, perfect holiness, and there will be no more death. There will be no more sin. There will be no more enemy to trouble us. And Jesus Christ is the king who will bring in that kingdom. And so the author of Hebrews says, do not forsake your walking with Jesus Christ because he is the one who will bring in the kingdom of God. And he will be victorious. I don't know if you've ever played a board game with your friends where you hit a particular point in the game and you know that you're going to win, but they don't. It's an exhilarating feeling, isn't it? I love it. My brothers and I used to play uh, Monopoly a lot when we were kids. and um, I've told some of y'all before, it could lead to some very competitive interactions, maybe some somewhat physical interactions between me and my brothers. Uh, We got very competitive about this game. and One of the things that my brother did that uh, I'm not recommending because it's evil, but he would do this often, is uh, as we were playing the game, he would uh, take some of his Monopoly money and he'd just kind of stash it under the board where we couldn't see it. You know, And so we would think we were winning. We were trucking along and we were winning the game and he'd start kind of mortgaging a couple properties and right as we thought we had him on the threshold of bankruptcy, he'd reach under the board and he'd pull out that wad of cash. Just with a big smile on his face, he'd win the game. We hated it. Right? It produced more arguments and confrontations between the three of us than anything. And yet Dan had this exhilarating feeling of, I know I'm going to win. They don't know it, but I know it. And what the author of Hebrews here says is right now we see this world temporarily subjected to death and sin and pain. But ultimately, Jesus is going to win. And so he's waiting at the right hand of God the Father. And he'll one day be victorious. He's better than the angels. He's better than anything you could put your trust in. It may be that you're here this evening and you haven't yet trusted in Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And what you need to hear from this passage is there's no other way, no other way to know God. The New Testament makes an absolute claim of exclusivity. Jesus is not just one path among many. Jesus is not just a good idea. He's the only way to have eternal life. If you have not yet trusted in that, in Jesus Christ alone for forgiveness of sins and eternal life, Challenge of the book of Hebrews for you tonight is place your faith in Him and what He has done for salvation. For those who have, I think the challenge of the book of Hebrews for us is this in the midst of sometimes persecution, in the midst of all kinds of competing worldviews, will we be willing to entrust our lives, our futures, our hope to Jesus Christ? Can I take my grades and my career? My romantic relationships, if I have any or not, right? My, uh, my other relationships, my time, my money. Can I take those things and I hand them to Jesus Christ and I say, Jesus, I know that you're, you're better than any earthly pursuit. I know that you're greater than any other way of spirituality. And I entrust it to you and I trust that you will make something eternal and lasting out of my life if I'll invest my time, my energy, in knowing you and proclaiming the glory of God through Jesus Christ. That's what the book of Hebrews is calling us to do. Would you guys pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for your word. Because we know that in it, we see the words of life that point to your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for him, that it is in him we have eternal life, no other way, And it is in him we know how to spend our days in pursuit of you. Thank you for the Bible that tells us who you are. Thank you for your spirit who lives within us and guides us so that we can know you. Let us listen to his voice. Father, we thank you again for this time, and we just worship you for all that you are and all that you've done on our behalf to rescue us from death and sin. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's uh, one or two people up here uh, that are available. If you'd like prayer or if you have any prayer requests, feel free to come and talk to them. Uh, We're glad you guys are here, and we look forward to seeing you next week.